This is the first talk on a series which will probably um, amplify out to a series of three on knowledge. It's not a talk, it's a conversation. It's actually more of a conversation than we've had so far on Gospel Conversations. And it's a conversation between my good friend Mark Strom and me. Mark's an old favourite at Gospel Conversation and his views have really uh, framed how I think and framed a lot of the curriculum and approach to the Gospel we have in Gospel Conversations. So we're really, really glad uh, that Mark's uh, back on track to give us some of his wisdom. Uh, the headline of this particular series is really intriguing, which is that faith, hope and love are categories of knowing, not categories of morality. And that really immediately uh, plays with what we might think knowledge might be. Yeah, uh, yeah we, we, we've grown up in an era where knowledge is uh, scientized. It's, it's turned into data and information um, and it's somewhat stigmatized. But Mark believes that when Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, um, very famous passage, apparently on love, and he finishes by saying very famously uh, that there remains three of faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. Mark believes that he's actually talking about ways of knowing, uh, not about ethical or moral qualities. So faith, hope and love are best understood as paradigms of knowing uh, rather than as discrete moral qualities. So that's intriguing and it intrigued me from the moment I heard it. Uh, so this topic obviously fits very well with uh, the theme that we've woven in, in and out of this year it's, um, in Gospel Conversations. Uh, the, the interview with Esther Meek is probably the headline of that and we're looking forward to seeing her next year. And the approach Mark's going to talk about is very much in sympathy with her very systematic reframing of knowledge. Uh, it does build on Mark Ridgeway's talks on artificial intelligence. I mean, we're in an age where we seriously are considering that computers can think, quite unquote. So um, Mark's talks there are very helpful in um, giving us some groundwork to not just dispute that, but interact with that aura of artificial intelligence. Uh, they also will, Mark, this conversation will tie in very powerfully with the talks I gave on discipleship. Um, they, 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 sorry, the, the theme that evolved in the talks was discipleship. The topic was the creation gospel. And I, I said we need a new paradigm of discipleship um, that takes it out of its pietistic um, moral boxes and, and gives it a, a, a bigger framework <clears throat> and and this conversation will really contribute to that so um i think it's, it's going to be a series that's that you will really enjoy uh, the um you could ask why why we're so interested in knowledge um in gospel conversations uh 
I think the answer that's pretty obvious. Um, but suffice it to say that gospel conversations, by its nature, is a uh, forum for inquiry and exploration, and it is framed out of a picture, an anthropology of humanity as, as being distinguished by being in the image of God. And the thing that most distinguishes us by being in the image of God is what we could variously call mind, reason, soul, different eras have used different words. Um, but there's a category in us, there's a, sorry, there's a quality in us and a capability in us. Uh, that is our, our capability to think. However, um, the concept of thinking and the concept of knowledge today, in, in, in the day that we live in, has very bad press, really. Um, uh, I think it's stigmatised as um, head knowledge, you know, that, that's something that's academic and dry. Um, certainly, uh, there's a very strong movement in, in, within Christianity and evangelical Christianity that you could call anti-intellectual, and Mark Knoll, uh, wrote a profound book uh, critiquing the evangelical culture. It's called um, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, I think, in which, and the scandal is that it's anti-intellectual. Um, and, and um, you know, the, the sort of emphasis on feelings and experience, important as it is, tends to degrade knowledge. And, and knowledge is um, put in a dry, arid box of... Uh, study or head knowledge that doesn't affect your life. So, you know, knowledge is not sort of sexy in Christian circles. Um, to some extent, that problem has arisen because knowledge has boxed itself into a corner by surrendering its soul to science, uh, which uh, we would say is really the legacy of the Enlightenment, uh, the Cartesianal model of, of thought as objectified rational thought. So rationality um, has raised its head as uh, a totally empirical view of life uh, based on proof. And what that's led to is the, is the terrible um, dichotomy in the modern world between faith and reason. And, and so many people think that's your choice um, on both sides of the camp, Christian, non-Christian, or people who are yet to be Christians. I don't like the phrase non-Christian. If anyone can think of a better one, please tell me, but let's call them pre-Christian. -pre um, so uh, what that tells me is something's wrong with the very paradigms with which we're discussing this concept of knowledge. And that's what, we, that's what Mark gives us. Mark gives us, and I think Esther will do the same next year from a different angle, but Mark gives us a new paradigm, new framework to think much more freshly, much more creatively about, about knowledge. So let me conclude by uh, this short introduction by saying a word about Mark, and really it's about Mark and me. Um, we're best friends. Uh, Mark was the first person who joined me in my employment in Second Road. Uh, but in many ways, I don't think anyone has so profoundly and positively influenced me in my thinking in the gospel than, than Mark has. Um, what Mark did was, when we met when we were much, much younger, he was able to give more framework to, the, to what I understood intuitively, because Mark is actually trained um, 
in theology, he went to Westminster, which is very interesting because it's a very profound, profoundly intellectual reformed school, um, but also in philosophy. And Mark introduced to me the world of philosophy and uh, sort of gave me the foundations that I could move off on. And, and I was thinking about what I would try to say about Mark and my relationship and the way it's forged, how we think and talk. And that's what you're going to get. You're going to get an insight into in this talk because it's a real talk. It's a, and it's a snapshot of talks Mark and I have had over the last 30 years. Um, I, I, I would summarise it into about four major themes that dominated our talks. And the first was radical grace. We really felt that Christianity veered to legalism the whole time. And so radical grace is a profound theme of Marx. Um, and, and he developed that in the Gospel Conversation talks on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, the second was uh, what this one's about, epistemology, philosophy. How do we, how do we, how do we know what we know? Uh, the, the tone of that discussion was so fresh to me because it took the gospel out of this suffocating religious box and put it into the whole of life. Um, and so when I talk about epistemology, that sounds very dry, but it wasn't dry. And you'll, you'll, you'll hear us talk about this, basing our conversational knowledge on the work we were doing, for instance, in rewriting tax law um, as consultants. But it, it's... I would say that, um, yeah, one of the profoundest things Mark has said, and it came in a gospel conversation, talking a question at the end, is, that, and I think it only occurred to him at the time, he, he said that we make a tremendous mistake with the concept of application in, in, uh, in the Christian world, probably more broadly. Um, in other words, at the end of every sermon that I hear, you know, there's the last one third has got to be an application, like how do you implement <laughs> this, uh, whatever truth it is. And there's always, it always feels forced to me. It always seems to inevitably go down to, into stereotypes of behaviour um, that just leave your heart heavy. And what Mark said was, that's the wrong thing. What we need is discovery. We need to discover and uncover the, the seam of glory in all of reality. That's where it all begins. So when I say we were talking about philosophy and epistemology, I think, you know, if you put those words into a bigger framework, it's trying to un recover and uncover the, the mystery in life, the surprising, stunning mystery in life. And it's seamless. You see it everywhere. You see, you begin to see the mystery and the glory everywhere. You, you no longer have religious categories. So that's the second area that... Mark gave a framework to in my, in my life and the life of others. The third one is very significant, which is reframing the Bible and the gospel as a as story, narrative, rather than as a systematic treatise. And thus, this becomes a way, a literary way of handling the Bible as narrative, a narrative in which the point of the narrative, the theme of the narrative, the drive of the narrative, the climax will be the person called Jesus Christ, um, who wraps it all together and introduces the denouement, the so what. Um, the, the last way uh, that Mark, I think, 
uh, helped helped legitimise a lot of the uh, flexible ways I intuitively, as someone trained in poetry and literature, like looking at the Bible, was the concept of multi-perspectival thinking. That the way we approach reality is through multiple perspectives, often roads carved by imagery, and that that's fine, that, that the Bible does the same thing. So uh, that package of themes, uh, you, you will see a lot of that coming up in this talk. Uh, it, this first talk is introductory, um, and I think it needs to be introductory, um, because by that I mean we spend a fair amount of time looking at well, what's the problem with the word knowledge? And I think it, you know, we talk a lot about it from in, in, in a far-reaching um, discourse, chat, um, that takes this word and makes it more vital, more powerful. Um, I mean, today, for, for goodness sake, what we're seeing in America tells us that knowledge is incredibly important because knowledge is what we, we do. The, the knowing is the human side. The corollary of that is truth. That's the object of knowledge is to find truth. So we're dealing with truth here. Um, and, and in a day where truth seems to be challenged even as a possibility by the fake news conspiracy theory. Um, uh, disease, really, that unfortunately um, a lot of the more right-wing Christian uh, side of social media seems to endorse um, has, has made people realise how fragile it is if you take away this thing called truth how fragile it makes all of life. So um, I probably, I mean, once you take knowledge and put it into that broader framework, you begin to see, well, why is it important? What's problematic? Um, and, and we talk a lot about that in this upcoming conversation. So um, I commend it to you and trust you'll enjoy it. Hi, Mark. Hey, Tony. This is uh, good to be with you, man. Good to be with you. It's been a long journey and uh, we're going to talk about something really interesting. Yeah, I was only thinking the other day about just how long this partnership's been going. I think it was something like 84 or 85 or something. Well, I think it's worthwhile as a bit of context because what we're going to be talking about is knowledge. Mm. And we're going to be talking about a new paradigm of knowledge um, through the lens of faith, hope and love. Mm which is a insight that you had a long time ago. Um, and we'll come to that in a moment. However, I think it's worthwhile explaining to everybody a little bit of our joint journey because that joint journey began, as you say, in the 1980s, but we worked together professionally. Um, yeah. I, I was um, a refugee from teaching, um, plunging out into the world of consulting and uh, not quite knowing what I was doing, and you joined and asked if you could join. And so we, ha we had this two guys not knowing what they were doing relationship. But the kind of tasks we began doing, we did a lot of what would today be called technical writing, but we did it in a far more creative way, in a more strategic way. But nonetheless, we had very, very 
um, in a sense, concrete tasks like rewriting, redesigning a procurement manual, or I can remember a risk management manual you did, um, or, or the, uh, yeah, or the defibrillator one that you did, or the defibrillator one. And so we were dealing with very, very complex, generally scientific, technical information, but we were bringing a artistic lens to it. So the whole issue of what on earth, quote unquote, knowledge is, because we were our clients were knowledge industries in other words heavy technical industries so we had this hands-on experience of the task of crafting knowledge but largely i think through you and probably david jones we began to look at that task through a theological lens putting it simply you know what is knowledge as part of the created order so I, th I think too that you you know we both from different places had a such a strong instinct to go um to, to really to ask questions about the people before we asked questions about the content um so you know you've done a lot of amazing stuff with kids teaching kids um uh how to think really through you know sort of the trojan horse was teaching them how to write but it was really about teaching them how to think and for my own part i, I don't know there was just some sort of instinct that said um you know when someone gives you a, a 50 or 100 page dense document just something says to you not first and foremost this is a um a poorly written document but the first instinct was this can't work for people surely this can't work for people what are they actually trying to do um and as you and i from different places we just kind of burrowed into what are these people trying to say and trying to do you know how does this thing actually function for them and it was through that that we ended up you know being able to dramatically reduce the amount of pages and put you know 10 pages into one diagram and all that sort of stuff that we did and it was really about this it was the knowledge question um well it was and and we began to realize that in human enterprises particularly today knowledge is far from being some peripheral thing that you kind of paper around an organization actually it was the organization we uh, we view, uh, there are two things as you were saying that I saw. Number one, knowledge is power. And we begin to see it's a real power game. Um, and um, who, who's got the knowledge and who hasn't got the knowledge became um, incredibly important. So you and I were both uh, wanting to introduce the user in and, and, and take the professional expertise out of the knowledge. So for instance, we did the tax law improvement project yeah which was in a sense democratizing legislation so ordinary people could understand it but this was resisted by the lawyers because absolutely obfuscation was their money you know yeah. and um and but what we were doing all the time among many other things of course one of the movements that really um informed us was the plain english movement and as you know the heart of the plain english movement essentially is to personalize the sentence mm, yeah introduce I and you into it yeah. and make it personal rather than it is thought that the objective, which objectifies everything. And it's we, a really incredible thing, isn't it? Like you can get a, a dense paragraph of writing. And if you don't know any other uh, technique or, or insight about how language works, if you just, as you said, if you just introduce I and you and you deliberately go about putting that wherever it belongs in the paragraph, you you just magically kind of the thing becomes clear. It becomes it clear. It's introduced. It's amazing. It becomes accountable. Now, just, you know, so everybody knows how important this is, um, the, the project that we're just at the moment alluding to, one of many, was 
the uh, called the Tax Law Improvement Project, where the tax office and the government wanted to essentially reduce the vast complexity of law um, by getting the Office of Parliamentary Counsel to redraft the law in plain English terms. And I, I was the main consultant working with the wonderful Tom Reed, who was the lawyer on that. And um, uh, the the whole idea of opening the language up by introducing people was so... So we wanted to, to introduce into law the words I and you, or we and you, or the government and you, right? We're moving from the third person to the second person. It was so controversial it needed an act of parliament to allow it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay to say this in law. And, and then you begin to realise, well, this is not a game because... A, it makes things understandable, but B, it changes, it democratises information, it makes it accountable. And I just love using the example, you know, it has been decided to fire you, third person, objectified, as opposed, well, who decided to fire me? Like, you know. <laughs> um, so we were aware, I think, of course, looking on this, we were aware that Jesus is called the Logos, you know, this metaphor of the word was was not inconsequential in the Greco-Roman world. It was a big thing and, and, and language uh, and its closeness to anthropology and identity and its closeness to power and reality became vastly interesting to us. And, and you in particular, and then I've, I, I mean, you were teaching me philosophy and I was catching up. So we both ended up with our PhDs, but really, for this conversation, I think it's worthwhile people knowing it began in a very grounded experience where yeah. words and how they work and humanising them yeah. was uh, our, our game um, with wonderful clients who were had to be brave to do it. Yeah. But we were a bit naive because we didn't realise how political it was, how important it was. But, as of course, as we realised it, we became more strategic. But... I think that's a good segue into knowledge because... Um... I think the other thing about it too, Tony, is that, you know, we were also doing some fairly conventional things in terms of, you know, we'd, we'd started the community and so there were, you know, there were teaching, you know, biblical teaching type sessions that you and I were sharing. And, but the conversations between th that context and the tax and other type context, for you and me, the conversations were seamless. They just kept going backwards and forwards. So it wasn't just about a one-way, oh, here we are trying to translate theology into this other world. It was, it was you know, b both directions. And, in fact, our, our understanding of, you know, Logos and whatever else and what we were seeing in the Scriptures was actually being informed and changed quite, quite a lot by what we were seeing of the, you know, the stunning significance of this. It was. And as you say, it was a two-way flow where, you know, I just keep going back to that story um, which began to illuminate me at the time. There's two stories. One's the burning bush and the other's Jacob and the ladder between heaven and earth. You know, like Jacob's in the desert and he thinks, oh, I'm absolutely in secular world. God's nowhere near. And then he has this dream of, oh, this was the house of God and I didn't know it. And you and I both began to have this experience. We thought we were out in quite unquote secular world, yeah. um, dealing with large corporates and huge bureaucracies, uh, quite close to the centres of power. And we woke up thinking, ah, oh, actually God was in this place. You know, all of life is theological. You cannot talk about knowledge and data without it's uh, really drawing on the resources and uh, of the gospel and the illumination of the gospel. 
Interesting, I remember one story from that time with the tax law improvement project, my own story, was working with that lovely fellow, Graham, and um, we were, um, we'd hit this place of kind of, we were stumped about how to how to simplify this particular piece of legislation and, and its implications. At the same time, in parallel, we've been having this conversation. It was really about his family, his life, and his family, and the, you know, real struggles he was going through. And um, and I suggested um, this particular Friday afternoon, let's go for a walk. So here, this very senior taxation person and myself, off we go walking around Canberra. And uh, and by the time we got back to the office we'd kind of cracked both of them. Like he had a new sense of what he was going to do in his own personal life, but we'd cracked the issue that we were trying to figure out in terms of tax law. And um, which is again, a nice segue in that, you know, you can't, you can't know truly if you distance yourself, you know, you have to engage and, and you have to engage with a person as much as with a topic, with an idea. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great, I think, pretext to what we're about to talk about. Uh, it's not really a pretext. I think it informs it. So what I thought I might do is um, share a sketch, um, which yeah. is the ABCD sketch. Um, a bit strange for you and I to talk for very long without one of us drawing, so. <laughs> correct, correct. We, we, um, we absolutely love uh, sketching reality. So I'm going to put this up on the screen and hopefully Everyone can see what I can see. Can you can you see? Yeah, yeah, it's great. If you want to put it on full screen, we can see it in all its glory. Okay, I'm trying to put. It. Oh, there it goes. Is that full of screen? Yep. Yeah. Uh, this is a model that is the ABCD model, which is our model for an argument, which we've elevated into a strategy model, um, and it's been a powerful heuristic for many very large organisations, not the space to go into it now, but as we were talking about this topic and what you had to say, which I thought was quite breathtaking, um, it, it formed in my mind as the structure of an argument. And the structure of an argument is um, over here, what I, we call the A space is what is what's problematic and promising, what's our current situation. Um, and the B is what is our vision? Where does this all go towards? And the, that A to B uh, frames the argument. Mm. And then the big idea is the C. So, so how are you going to get from A to B? You know, well, that's, that's the, what you could call the lever. Um, and and that, the guts of what we're going to say is actually your big idea. And I think I want to give you credit because I think it is your big idea there in the C space. And then when you've got the big idea and you've absorbed it, you, you, you go into what we call D, which is, well, what, do I, what might I do to take this into the real world, which is how do I apply it, how do I play with it, and so on. So we're going to use this model to guide the conversation because if we don't use something to guide a conversation, Mark, we'll be here forever and everyone will be uh, impressed but confused. You're not, you're not saying you and I would just ramble, are you? Uh, no, there's no, there's no, there's no worry about that. Well, I've got to give one caveat up front. And, and I know in your, your great love for me, you keep wanting to say this is my new idea. It's, it's uh, basically there's, there's quite a few people who have made some connection between faith, hope and love and, and knowledge um, uh, after Paul, of course, as we'll get to. But, you know, Augustine and... Um, yeah, a number of other people, but I just don't know. I, don't, I feel like I have never seen it spelt out 
as as simply as this simple mind can uh, has found a way to do it. Right. Well, I think the other person that I'd like to acknowledge is Esther. Um, yeah, absolutely. Esther is very much doing a similar thing and probably with a broader scope than you or I because it's, 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 her, it's her life. But yeah. I thought there was such a segue between uh, the conversations that we've had with Esther and, and what you wanted to say that that's, that's gave, gave me and us the idea of having this conversation. Yeah, yeah and I admire, admire her work greatly. Yeah, and the second segue, which is really important, is that we've been having, um, I've given some talks on the creation gospel which you know about, and it, and and what I've advanced in the in that is a, a is a new concept of discipleship to to try to free us from the idea that discipleship is some kind of religious, uh, pietistic um, stereotype. Yeah. To and, and what I talked about was the discipleship of design or or design as discipleship, and if you frame design as uh, the transformation of situations. Mm. There'll be a quite a strong segue into into this what we're about to talk about that I've found helpful. Where we begin is today. We'll, we'll sort of skate across the A to B, which will give a context to, to the conversation. Um, and 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 I'm just going to open up with what I have seen, and then get you to respond. And what I've seen is that the word knowledge, quote unquote, is downgraded in Christian circles. Um, you can go where, say, Mark Knoll's gone with the scandal of the evangelical mind. Essentially, Christianity has has this anti-intellectual um, veering it can't get away from. Mm, without that, saying too much, you can kind of see that at the present moment. You certainly can. And it's, it's probably um, fed by the artificial... Um, polarization between faith and reason. Okay, and I've, I'm on the faith side, so therefore I'm very anti-reason. Mm. Um, and uh, also, I notice just amongst a lot of the Christians I know, it's it's oh, that's head knowledge. So there's a there's a sort of a, a stereotyping of knowledge as academic Bible knowledge, not heart knowledge. And yeah. and there's a contrast. And I I know a lot of very sweet Christians who. You know, you want to talk about the Trinity? Oh, that's all too complicated for me. Um, I just got to love Jesus, and and um, so the the downgrading in the Christian box is, I think, quite a significant thing. And yet, and 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 then in parallel with that, there's on the, on the secular side, there's a there's another kind of downgrading that we've just alluded to, which is the objectification of knowledge. Knowledge is yeah. facts and data and science. And it probably is on the same faith versus reason polarization, but it's gone the other way. And so the, 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 the orphan in the middle is any rich view of knowledge. And yet any casual reading of the New Testament will um, tell you that knowledge is heavily emphasized, you know, grow in grace and the knowledge of God. I mean, how many times does... Paul want to invoke knowledge of the great Ephesians one prayer is I want you to know. Um, and so some, we're missing something. Um, that, that's, that's how I responded. I, I just like your feedback on that. Yeah, I, I straight away thought of Paul saying, you know, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Um, 
Yeah, it's a it, it's a really sad thing that we've ended up with this polarization. I mean, you think of the idea of you know our reasonable faith. You know, it's um, there, there need be no polarity between these things at all. Um, that um, you know, it is um, those of us you know who who do acknowledge Jesus as Lord should should feel almost compelled by that to want to understand, to want to know know the world. Um, know what it is that, that's been created and, and how it works. Um, at the same time, those who who see themselves as you know we're all about logic and, and analysis and, and reason, I think are naive in not understanding um, how the very notion of reason is itself is is based upon a belief. Um, you know, as we we've, we've often talked about before, you can't. Um, you know, for people who who push that, one of the kind of the great the great intellectual sins is is circular reasoning. You know, um, beginning with where you're trying to get to at the end. But of course, you you can't mount an an argument. You can't mount a traditional Aristotelian syllogism for why reason works. You have to assume reason for the argument to actually work, which which leaves you saying, well, what is it about the world? What is it about life that makes this a useful tool? Um, exactly. And this is where our recent conversations have not been surprising to me on the secular side. You know, I mean, I'm quite used to that battle of lot fought it all my life with you and with others. And so I'm used to that. The real illumination to me came on the Christian side. Um, and how do we take this word knowledge and renovate it? Yeah. How do we actually make it a key ingredient of the discipleship model? And in order to do that, we need, a, I think, a paradigm shift around the word, which is what you, you, uh, you will offer us and our conversation will offer. Um, and, and that moves to, in a sense, what, what, I've, what I've got is the, it, the, the B space, which I'll, I'll share the screen again just to get that going. Um, The B is the, is the vision. Uh, so can we see my screen again there, Mark? Yep. yep. Like vision is incredibly important for Christians. Christians of all people should be people of vision because our whole theology and faith is structured around hope and hope of an end time. Um, so the vision that, this, that, we, that, that I think is relevant on this knowledge thing, what immediately struck me was this wonderful... Verse, I think it occurs twice, at least in the Old Testament. Certainly, Zechariah says it, that the 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 was it the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Yeah, yeah. And um, Anne and I have been doing a lot of reading of the Old Testament. And what is striking us is how intent God wanted understanding, mm. and how the prophets attacked false understanding of who God was. Not not actually. And he didn't like um, fake knowledge. He didn't, you know, um, pharisaical rules. You know, Isaiah, we're reading at the moment. He just hits them. And he wanted people who understood in their souls who God was. Yeah. Uh, so that what that showed to me, as you can see in this model here, is that um, God, as, as we, we share this wonderful vision from Genesis of cosmic rule, he's equipping humanity to rule and govern the cosmos. That's the great kingship model that we see in the scriptures. And, and, and yet we need to go inside that model and say, well, hang on, let's go further because that 
this is not some, this is not a, like a Trump-like vision of egotistical power. This is, he wants knowledge that's conscious mm. and deliberate. He wants agency mediated by humans. In other words, mm. there's a lot of education of these humans who are gonna rule the universe to do it very deliberately according to the character and will of God. And it's a, it's a knowledge that, it's a knowing that blesses. I, yes, it's a knowing that blesses. It's a knowing that um, leads to um, social good. Yeah, social, and, social and the good, good of the earth. And, and the good of the earth, yes. I mean, the actual passage that Anne and I were contemplating you know, in the depths of Isaiah, and you're, 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 I don't know where we were, I think 32, um, and, you know, he's criticising the fool. Um, and what was incredibly, so obviously the idea of wisdom and fool, it's right in the heart of knowledge, and as a matter of fact, wisdom might be a better word to use than knowledge, but whatever. Yeah, it's, I like to use it. <laughs> yeah. He's criticising the fool, but what struck us immediately was the outcome of foolishness was socially oppressive behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because he goes on, he says, he, the fool practises ungodliness, spreads error concerning the Lord, which that struck us. Wow. He's criticising, we know they were false prophets, um, yeah. who were backing the Assyrian, uh, sorry, I think the Egyptian alliance against Assyria, but nonetheless, error concerning the Lord. Yeah, they got their theology wrong. And the outcome were that the fool leaves the hungry empty and from the thirsty he withholds water. So that what you've just said about this knowledge is not just some academic curiosity. It's equipping people to mediate blessing or not to the world. One of the marks in the Proverbs of uh, the wise king, one of the, you know, the, it's a bit like, you know, Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. And in, in the Proverbs, it's a little bit, they'll, they'll know you're the wise king um, by all the, the widow and the, the, the orphan and all the people who are oppressed will, will be blessed. Um, you know, they'll have an advocate in the king. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. a mark of wisdom. Yeah, and, and so, and all equally... Uh, Wisdom defines kingship. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so what I began to see, if I now connect what we're talking about directly into what I also talked about around discipleship, was I began to, this was the paradigm shift for me, where I think I've been guilty of the baggage of, of a mental model of discipleship as you know, a stereotype of pietistic behaviour. And every time people talk about we're doing something in church at the moment and it's, it's, it's earnest and well-intentioned and on the whole good, but you can't get out of the feeling this is very stereotypical, you know, pray, read the Bible, yep. go to church, witness. And it's a, it's a fairly tedious list of requirements. Um, whereas I begin to see, now, hang on, we are meant to be transformers of situations. And um, I'll, I'll just quickly share the screen again because there's a great little model there um, of what I'm talking about. Um, can you see the screen again? Yeah. It's this middle model um, here where the transformation recorded in Genesis 1 verse 2 from is it Tohu, Vo, 
but boohoo. <laughs> yeah, talk about boohoo, yeah. <laughs> there, there were three kind of vectors of transformation, um, formlessness into form, yeah. um, unproductive energy into productive energy, but the third one is into light. Yeah. And, and that I know you're going to pick up on it, but to say one of the critical transformations God wants is light. Yeah. And that is, oh, so, so bringing light into situations is an aspect, therefore, of discipleship. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, so this is part of the new discipleship model. You know, what if you said, no, no, discipleship is being able to bring light into situations, you know, personal situations, family situations, political situations, biblical situations, whatever, bringing light really, really matters. It's central to the purposes of God. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's light that blesses. I mean, it'd be, it's really easy to kind of hear that language. And if you're still stuck in that, that pietistic and religious mindset, then you'd say, oh, yeah, of course. You, you bring light in. That's part of, you know, to use one of your phrases, that's part of what you need if you're going to be moral police. You know, if, if, so we can shine and go, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, that's wrong, that's bad, um, rather than, than light, which, which illumines uh, uh, everything and, and shows glory, you know, that blesses and shows glory. Exactly. Uh, now, what you've just said there was, I think, something which is important and we could build on this showing glory um, in that. I mean, one of my favourite passages, I'm sure yours, I know it was my favourite passage of the patristics was the burning bush passage um, where, you know, Moses saw what at face value looked like a dry bush. Um, but what was illuminated, he saw the reality of that bush, which was the glory shining. Mm. And, and nowadays, of course, we of all people would know that actually isn't even a metaphor because the molecular energy in that bush could blow the world up, you know, if it was unlocked. So it was the, the glory shining out of situations is very important. And I've, um, I can also remember a great a series of talks I heard from one of Watchman Nee's cohorts, wonderful old man called Stephen Kong. I wouldn't agree with everything he says, but then again, he, he was just such a magnificent Christian. Um, and a lot of what he said was absolutely breathtaking. One thing he said, which I'll never forget, he said, this is the key aspect of leadership. Uh, seeing the glory in others. He, that's how he read that. Moses was being yeah. taught. I have, if, if Moses thought the Israelites are total losers, they're sinners, that's how I'll name them. He couldn't lead them. And if we want to lead anyone, kids, our own kids, we have to yeah. see the glory in them. And if yeah. we can't, then we're not, we're not at first base. Well, you know, in my work on leadership the last 20 or so years, you know, I've, um, my way of saying that has been to use the word brilliance um, because glory tends to stop a lot of conversations. Uh, brilliance lets it keep going. And, uh, and that I've, I've said the same thing, that... Um, you know, you can't you can't lead well if you can't see the brilliance in other people and 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 know how to bring about the conversations that help people realise the brilliance that they do have and find ways to um, to bring that to the fore. And and one of the things I've often said is it's pretty difficult to do that if you don't have a sense of that for yourself. But it's you know, which could sound terribly narcissistic and self-serving, except that for me, it's always shaped by this on behalf of this sense of it's not for myself. It's, it's on behalf of the, one, the ones that I serve. 
Mm. Well, when you say that, Mark, just to make this practical, this brilliance idea, you know, which which would be, I mean, we, we, we would be saying a disciple has to shed, has to unlock the brilliance in yeah. situations and in people. Now, can you just quickly tell the story of, you know, I can remember uh, you helping um, people in the school system and, and, and they were quite broken. You had conversa a conversation that unlocked them from yeah. memory. Does that yeah. ring a bell for you? Yeah, oh yeah, it does. Yeah, um, I'm still in touch with, with a few of them. It's quite a while back now. Um, but it was, um, uh, there, there were about um, 40 or 50 schools that were identified about 15 years ago in one of the states here in Australia as being, uh, there, was a, there was a program set up for them because they were regarded as the worst schools in the state uh, on every metric. And, and I had the privilege of working with the principal of one of those schools who'd just been appointed to it. And, um, and she had been on one of the three-day retreats that I've, I've run for many, many years now. And, and she said to me, you know, I, I can see what's going to happen. She said, it's, it's like you often talk about this idea of um, you, you, this abstract idea of, you know, the, 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 the transformed school or the better school or whatever else. And she said, it'll be like going into the great um, educational supermarket with your trolley and you've got your check and you grab this program and that program and this program and stick them all in pedagogy, curriculum, blah, 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 blah. And supposedly that's going to make for transformation. And she said, you know, um, I don't buy it anymore. And you know, would you come and work with me? And um, it all started. We took the 50 teachers away for two days and we had uh, no other agenda than two questions. Um, literally, we hadn't, we, we hadn't organised what was going to happen through the whole two days. We just started with two questions. And the first question was, um, uh, why did you become a teacher? And, uh, you know, this is your world, you know the story here. And, and three hours later, 50 people had told the most extraordinary stories. And it was all, it was all hard stuff. I mean, it was lots of laughing, hilarity, but there were tears. And, and, and the end of it, and they told me this afterwards, was they just looked around the room at each other and, and had this sense of, I know you in a way I've, 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 I've never known, or in some cases, I've actually resisted knowing because I've always seen you as a problem and I've never wanted to believe there was more to you than what I just heard in that story. Um, and so we asked them to spend the next, uh, the rest of the day just talking with each other about what they had seen and felt. And the next day we asked them the question, what do you really think about the kids? And, uh, and cause all the stories came up, you know, about the brilliant kids and the, the kids that, you know, got expelled or whatever. And, and just the heart in it all, Again, even from the ones that teachers thought wouldn't, this wouldn't be their own disposition, but, you know, everybody just loved the kids, you know, and, and that's what really mattered to them. And again, at the end of it, they were just, you know, as I said afterwards, we just found ourselves thinking about each other and thinking about the school and thinking about the kids. That is knowing, right, knowing who we were, knowing what we were trying to do in a way that we'd never, ever seen before. Um, those those couple of questions and the conversations that were ignited by it, it, it brought light, and we followed it up working with teachers in small groups, and um, and the same thing happened in the in the 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 recollections that teachers had of of uh, odd moments of teaching, and I deliberately said I want to hear the odd ones, not the obvious ones, and it was in those odd moments that people realised, you know, actually I've seen some amazing things happen with kids. And we started to say, well, what if you paid more attention to those than all the supposed rules about how you're supposed to teach? 
And, and as they did that, their teaching changed more consistently. And, and anyway, it, the school has become something of a model for, for a lot of others. Although, interestingly, we, the, the principal and several of the teachers and myself, we told this story at a number of conferences for educators. And, of course, the principals and teachers just all wanted to come up and talk about it. But the people from the department and people from the universities, from the education faculties, none of them wanted to know about it. Well, you know, that that is a very, very pertinent and powerful story. And um, because at face value, I mean, this is part of the seamless world that now we, we, we inhabit. Um, you know, you've told a story uh, about you interacting with people and, 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 and there was no way that they were Christians, that you had a Christian hat on. No. But what you did in my, uh, in this model of discipleship that's developing, you shed light onto yeah. that situation in, in, in the form of directing the conversation towards brilliance. Yeah. And, and that was your, in, in what we're really developing here, being a disciple. Um, One other thing about it too is that in the conversation that I've, I've, you know, I've shared this story many, many times, as you can imagine. And one of the things that I often do to, to lead into the story, especially when I'm working with um, people in corporations, is I ask them, you know, you know, I tell them a bit about the background of the school and the terrible statistics and, and all the rest of it. And I say, so you know, how are we wired to go into a conversation like this? And people always say, well, it's to find the problem and find a solution for the problem. And I say to them, you know, well, what would happen if I, if I, in some way or another, I asked that group of 50, what's wrong? And, uh, and everyone knows that it would just spiral into this ugly conversation. And likewise, if you ask, oh, how do we fix it? It only stays buoyant for a very short time before it descends into the same horrible place. And, uh, and that, in a sense, to me, is, is the, exactly the same mindset as the religious and pietistic mindset. It just sees everything in terms of what's wrong and what's right. And, and, rather than, and to think in terms of brilliance and light and God's glory is just a phenomenally different place to approach things. Well, it is. And, of course, what... You know, if we put this into, into theological terminology, we would say this traditional pietistic religious language is really short on eschatology. Yeah. Um, we could argue that, you know, what, what you're doing is declaring a, a space of hope because it, it, at one level, the hope you, you would have for reformation of that system could be seen as being futile. Yeah. But you would know within yourself that, Actually, I'm on the winning side because I'm actually on God's side here. I'm declaring, we're, you know, from a belief you're all made in the image of God. I'm declaring from a belief we're going to govern yeah. the cosmos. I'm declaring from a belief in the resurrection that's affirmed all that hope. So I can speak hope in the situations. Yeah. And as what you and I know is that this a lot of this language does lead to conversations at night over a glass of wine where are you coming from uh, always <laughs> exactly that's it always the question where are you coming from you know yeah, i like what you're saying and I'd, I'd love it and uh and then um that when you mentioned how the bureaucrats and the academics don't like that it did remind me of the kind of oppression of the kings in israel that you know didn't want authentic conversations going on they really didn't um it's interesting you know when you think of um, so much of the prophets and of course uh, Jesus um, you know you think of the most scathing comments and they are for the 
the religious people, they're for the Pharisees, they're for people who have taken this incredible universal, you know, as big as, as, big as the creation story um, and packaged it up into this horrible little, little truncated religious box, you know, mm. and, um, and they're the ones that, that consistently come in for the rebuke, you know, in, in all of this. So um, I'm sure that has uh, intrigued people and, and, the, and the trajectory of the conversation uh, is, just to go back to the diagram, uh, what we've covered is the parameters, the A to B of this knowledge. And yet we need an idea. We need, we need something that's going to give us more than motivation and aspiration here, which is where this space of what we call C, which is the hypothesis, which is a big idea comes in. Now, I don't want you to go too far on this one because that's going to set an agenda for our second and possibly third interview. Who knows how long we'll chat. Um, but there's a new paradigm for discipleship that, that, is, that is offered, which is taking this word knowledge and reframing it as actually you know, through the lens of faith, hope, and love. I'd just like you to snapshot that yeah. uh, briefly, and then we'll close off and get ready for uh, to develop that in, in subsequent talks. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Do you want to um, take off the uh, your lovely diagram? It's interesting that, you know, the words faith, hope, and love, they are almost universally talked about as being virtues. And people will say they're either moral virtues or they're spiritual virtues, religious virtues, something like that. And, of course, the three words together, you know, everyone's alluding to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the chapter that we all think about love. And to go back to where you started about the kind of sense of pitting faith against reason, you know, you'd think a, a chapter here, it's about love, you know, and that's what really matters. I mean, that just seems to shore up that idea that, you know, it's faith that really matters. It's not, it's not reason. But, but I have for a long time argued that uh, 1 Corinthians 13, um, sure, it is about love in that that's what he makes central to his answer to something, his own hypothesis. But the issue that he's grappling with is not uh, about virtue or piety or anything like that. The issue he's grappling with is knowledge. It's about what it means to know. And you've got that right from the beginning of 1 Corinthians, um, with the whole uh, idea of, you know, it's the, the, um, the foolishness of God has, you know, has made foolish the wisdom of men. And it's this idea that the gospel story um, is on, um, if you see it through any other lens other than, than God's wisdom and, and who made the world and what he's seeking to do with it, it just looks ridiculous, you know. And, and uh, you know, to be talking about... Um, uh, a, a Jewish man in the time of the Roman Empire, you know, talk about a Jewish man, a carpenter from from Nowheresville, Nazareth, you know, uh, who ends up crucified and then raised from the dead. I mean, in terms of everything you know about about Plato and Aristotle and everybody else about how they've said how the world works. I mean, this is just from the political perspective, you know, a, a Jewish man crucified from the philosophical perspective, resurrection of the dead. It's just nonsense. You know, it just seems the most ridiculous story. And, um, and yet here Paul is saying, well, it turns out that that is actually the wisdom and power of God. And, and all the way through the, the, um, the rest of the book, the, this notion of knowledge is still there. And it's there in a particular way that um, if, 
if you think about how the ideas of, of the philosophers of the past were present, you know, in Paul's own day, they're not present in the sense that people are reading texts about philosophy or they're having conversations with each other about the nature of knowledge. The way it's present is the, is the nexus between knowledge, education and elitism. Um, so that it is only the educated who can be regarded as being knowledgeable. And, only, and it is only the elite who are educated. And so when you look in 1 Corinthians, um, as he starts to get into the, um, the meat of the, the, the issues, the dramas that are going on within the community between each other, there's this issue of elitism that is there all the way through. You know, who, who is, who's top dog here? You know, who, who are the ones who are the wise? Um, and Paul is, is, is flipping all of, the, all of these assumptions all the way through. Now, when he gets to 1 Corinthians 13, um, it's, it just hit me many, many years ago reading those first three verses. And when Paul says, um, uh, what if I possessed all knowledge but did not have love? And because I think at the time I had been spending so much time reading the classical philosophers, it just hit me between the eyes that he was the most succinct statement I can find not only in the Bible, but even in all classical literature of what was the aim of all those philosophers. And that was exhaustive knowledge, to know everything. And Paul says, what if I pulled it off, but didn't have love? And uh, you, you can be tempted again to think, oh, we'll see, you know, all that reason and knowledge, that doesn't matter. What really matters is, is, is love. Paul's not saying that. Paul is effectively saying, um, if I somehow seemingly, for the sake of the argument, seem to pull this off, frankly, it would all be distorted. All of my knowing would be distorted. And so he goes on to the end of it. He describes love, you know, sort of um, not seeking your own good and all the rest of all of which is incredibly radical in a world that was completely about self-interest. Um, but he gets to the end of it and says, you know, now, now we know in part one day we shall uh, know in, in full. He says, so then these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So the issue is here is it's the knowledge question, right, still. Okay, um, we, we know, we know uh, the story of Jesus is, in fact, the, the wisdom of God. We know one day that that is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Uh, um, but for the moment, we don't see it like that. For the moment, we glimpse starkly. We don't get it all. So then how does our knowing sustain itself in this, in this now but not yet context? And he says, so then these three remain, faith, hope and love, and the greatest is love. He's not doing a flip back from, well, you know, the knowledge thing's too hard. Let's just go with some sort of religious virtues. He, what he's saying is this is how we know. Um, the components of all knowledge is a is a is a faith all knowledge is is a belief all knowledge is a is a projection forward into something a hope and all knowledge all knowing is an embrace it's a drawing to others and to yourself um, and my argument is that in the larger scheme of things is not just that faith hope and love are not not virtues in some moral sense but ways of knowing but not just that they are like the ways of knowing for paul and his christian friends but in fact this is what it is intrinsically to be human that that if we are the create creature not the creator that all knowing of all people at all time no matter what they profess about god is always 
a, a knowing that is through faith, through hope, and through love. That is the character of what it means to know as a human being. That's wonderful, Mark. That's, uh, that is, um, I think it, it, it oxygenates <laughs> the idea of knowledge. And, but it does more than that. It gives us a pathway mm. uh, which we can explore as to how one can work on this, uh, find yeah. language in that, and um, that's really transformational. But that most of us have choices in that are fairly practical day, day by day. Um, it definitely, it definitely points to, to something that's pragmatically true, that yeah. this secular concept of uh, knowledge as information processing, you know, um, I've got a book there, it's, it's a unified theory of knowledge, I think it's called that by one of the kind of computer philosophers. Mm. And it's, it's an amazingly limited book. It, you know, the, 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 it's just information processing, whereas that's actually not the truth. The truth is not data, the truth is not things, but what is the truth then? Well, all, if, if data and things are the received world, you need the light of faith, hope and love shining on them. And as you say, this is not in the slightest, even Christian language. It's actually um, all wise human language. Um, and, and, and I would um, say it's not even like a post-fall knowing, if you like, but, you know, as we can talk about maybe next time around, is that uh, I, I anchor this back into Genesis 1 and 2, not, not just 3. Um, well, that's, that sounds to me like a great teaser to finish <laughs> on. Um, and uh, we'll do what Dickens did in his novels. He finished every chapter with people saying, no, 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 uh, what's that? And the next chapter's <laughs> going to be there. So... Uh, uh, mate, thank you very much. It's been wonderful and uh, I'm so glad to have you back on the airwaves. It's been great to be with you, Tony. Okay. <laughs> Speak soon. Bye.